podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca, and we are back with a very spooky special Halloween episode for you. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited too. I'm actually really excited for Halloween this year. Yeah, I think I've got my Dracula jumper on. Oh, very, very in the spirit. Got my ghost mug. (laughs) Ready to go. (laughs) I have not got any such things, but I am all dressed in black. So (laughs) there you go. There is that. Shall we tell the people about our Halloween costume? Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. We're going as, um, what are their names? <laughs> Andrea and Eleanor from Do Revenge. Revenge. Yeah. It's Because be you just have an outfit that was in that film. Yeah, I um, just own Eleanor's clothes already, so. <laughs> and I have found things that look like Drea's clothes. So. You have Drea's hair. Uh, yeah, I do. So. I do have her hair. Yeah. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited. Forward to it. <laughs> no one will get it. No, and I'm, we'll have to explain it all night. Yeah, but... every every single new person that comes in, we're going to be like, what are you? <laughs> yeah. But it'll be good. It will be good. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll just kind of jump in. Much like our summer special, in this episode we're each going to share three of our favourite spooky season books. So Emily, what are you infatuated with this Halloween? So... Before I start, I wanted to shout out two books that are perfect for this episode, but that I'm not going to talk about. Okay. Because I want to do, like, full episodes on them when we have a proper season again. Okay. Uh, they're both by Ava Reed. Uh, there's The Wolf and the Woodsman, which came out in 2021, and Juniper and Thorn, which came out this year, 2022. They're both really creepy. They're really, like, grisly and gruesome they're inspired by different folklores but they're like romancy as well um and i just adore them both and juniper and thorn is like hands down one of my favorite reads of this year so i just wanted to shout them out because you should be reading them this halloween i just i'm not talking about them (laughs) this halloween okay good to know but yeah my first book that i am going to talk about today is a new read for me i read it last month which is when it came out it's Not Good for Maidens by Tori Bovolino. Um, and I was actually sent this one by Titan in exchange for a review. She's famous. As always, this isn't that review. I just really like it. I think it's really good for this time of year. It's a gothic novel inspired by the 1859 gothic poem Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Oh, I remember you talking about this. Yeah. Um, and that was a poem that I studied at uni and I loved it. Um, so I was really excited to hear that this retelling was being written and I thought because today is like a bit different anyway um, I would actually look at the poem first. It's a pretty famous poem in the gothic world but I hadn't heard of it before uni so I'm going to assume that like some of our listeners don't know what it is either. I've never read it. Um, so yeah I'm going to do like the gothic researcher thing Yay. for a little bit and then I'll actually talk about the novel. <laughs> to begin... Uh, two things about um, Christina Rossetti. She is, uh, was a very religious woman. Um, she was very involved with the Anglo-Catholic movement of the Church of England. She also volunteered long-term in a penitentiary for fallen women. Oh, yes. <laughs> so these two things become very apparent when you read Goblin Market. Within the narrative of the poem, it's like a reworking of the Garden of Eden. But instead of an apple being the forbidden fruit, you have goblin fruit. I'm so here for this. (laughs) Yeah, and one of them mentioned, like, one of the goblin fruits is a pomegranate, which obviously has connections with Persephone too, and that's also a fruit associated with, like, sensuality. 
So the poem itself follows sisters Laura and Lizzie and despite knowing that the Goblin Market is a dangerous place, Laura decides to go and when she's there she eats the goblin fruit that is offered to her. Um, I think she pays for it with a lock of her golden hair. Um, I have read this! Yeah, I think it was in second year, so yeah, you were yeah, about yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this fruit is really intoxicating, it's the best thing she's ever eaten. She has this like really wild night at the market. Um, but she knows the market is dangerous and she plans on never going back. Unfortunately, the goblins haunt her every night, so every night she can hear them calling for her, saying like, Laura, come back, we have all this amazing fruit (laughs) for you to eat again. Uh, They call, come by, come by. But she resists, and because she resists, she gets sick and like weakens. So after a long time of this, Lizzie decides that the only thing that will make Laura better is the fruit. So she goes to the market with a plan. She goes in with a silver coin and asks for lots of goblin fruit but because she won't eat it herself and they won't let her just like leave with it she's like okay just give me my money back then like I'm going. Uh, The goblins get angry and tie her up and torture her and pelt her with the fruit but she stands like stoic throughout it and they give up and let her leave. So then she returns home to Laura and Laura kisses all the fruit juice that Lizzie is now covered in and Laura gets better (laughs) and then they never go to the market again (laughs) that is so fucking wild I remember it now and like what a what a time yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly um I'm not really gonna analyze the poem much more than that you can kind of get the gist of the themes there's like the sister family bond there's the idea of saving someone from being a fallen woman which is something we know Rosetti had experience of seeing happen um there's lots of religious themes like the forbidden fruit is obviously the most obvious example um but instead of like the tree of knowledge being temptation it's like being tempted by like sensual sexual pleasures and the poem itself is very like sensory especially in the market there's so much description of just just stuff like everything's just like really saturated in description so yeah, I just think it's a really good gothic poem. I recommend reading it. For a poem published in 1859, I'd say it's not very confusing <laughs> to read. Like, it's quite an easy read. Um, and it's got like a nice rhythm and lyricism to it as well. So I thought before I talk about Not Good for Maidens, I would read a little bit of the poem. Just to kind of give an idea of what it's like. And also, like, the poem is sort of like the epigraphs throughout the book and okay. stuff. So you're always kind of been reminded that it's based on a poem. So yeah, this is near the beginning and it shows the difference between Laura and Lizzie and also introduces us to like the goblins in their market. Um, I don't really know how I'm gonna <laughs> read this. Well, I'll be next to the mic. I've got a very massive anthology book from uni. <clears throat> okay, so this is from fairly early on in Goblin Market. Evening by evening, among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear, Lizzie veiled her blushes. Crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips. Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men, we must not buy their fruits, who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots. 
Come by, called the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, cowered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen tramp little men. One hauls a basket, one bears a plate, one logs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow, whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, no, no. Their offers should not charm us, their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes and ran. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail. One tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail. One like a wombat, proud, obtuse and furry. One like a ray-tail, tumbled hurry-scurry. She heard a voice like the voice of doves, cooing altogether. They sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. And oh, there. <laughs> it's so good. It's so like, l- like lyrical. Yeah, like I love it. I just, I don't know. Like, I love a. I feel like nowadays rhyming poems get a bit of like, oh, that's old fashioned or whatever. But I just think they're so fun to listen to. <laughs> I think when it's like that and it's like really sensory yeah. and it's to do with engaging your senses, rhyming poems make a lot of sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. That was a lot of sense. Yeah. In one sentence. Um, so yeah, I'll stop with the poem there and now move on to Bobbly Knows Not Good for Maidens. Um, and that title is a line from later on in the poem. It's something like, the market is not good for maidens. So, it is not a direct retelling. It doesn't follow the exact plot of the poem. But the themes are similar. Um, so there's two timelines. You've got the present day following main character Lou, Louisa. Um, she's always known that her mother and her aunt have this like secret past but never knew what um, until that is her aunt Neela who's actually the same age as her is kidnapped by the goblin market um, and that brings in the second timeline which is of Lou's mother and aunt Laura and May when they're younger and it's Lou's aunt May who is the character that's tempted into the goblin market and who manages to escape but always has that like call okay. to go back. Um, so you get that whole plot line. You get to see what May got up to in the market before her sister Laura came to save her, which is not a spoiler. <laughs> um, and then you have the present day storyline of Lou going to the market to save her aunt Neela, but she has all the knowledge of what... Of what happened before. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of themes and um, Bovley knows definitely stuck with like the sisterhood vibes but there's this whole family of women and um, like it's even pointed out in the book that the men are just like sideline <laughs> like, like there's like like you know like parents aren't together or like oh like we don't like really care about like that person <laughs> whatever yeah. it's like all about the women and then rather than like sensuality I'd say it's more focused on sexuality there's like there's a queer storyline in it Lou is 
I don't think it's named, but what appears to be asexual, which I think is quite an interesting departure from the Goblin Market poem. Mm. And then I'd also add that Lou especially has questions about belonging, which again I think is quite interesting when you've got this like transient market yeah. that the story revolves around. Like the idea that she's constantly feels like she doesn't belong anywhere, I think is really interesting. So yeah, I I don't want to like say too much about the plot because it's just kind of wild. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It is pretty grotesque in the descriptions of the market. Like it's just gross. Mm. <laughs> so if you really like, if you're really squeamish, you might not like it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's like a horror or it's like too scary. It is also set in York. That's where the market is. I don't think it feels totally accurate for York. Like it just comes across as like a generic old town. Yeah. Which is like a bit of a shame, but it's also not really what the mark, like what the book is about, is about anyway. Yeah. So I can kind of let it slide. But I wish it had more like Yorkisms in mm. it. But that's just me being picky because I like York. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I actually only have one quote from the novel today because I talked about the poem. Um, but it's like a longer one. I thought I'd give you like a big chunk of the market because I imagine that's what everyone actually wants to hear about yeah um, so this is a passage from Lou's first entry to the market she's being accompanied by a goblin called Kildred who thinks he's like enticed her in himself but obviously she'd planned to go in there to mm. rescue she's just kind of playing a bit dumb and yeah this is her first look of the market Sounds grew louder and louder as they descended, a cacophony of voices and laughter and shouting and things being dropped and moved, heavy objects dragged across the floor and metal crashing together. Lou thought she was ready as they came to the market floor, but of course she wasn't. How could she prepare for something like this? It was a frenzy down below, madness personified. She realised that Kildred had shrugged off his glamours like a coat, he was now green and pebbled, his fingers too long, his hair a mass of ferns growing from his head. Though the stairs descended farther into the dark, Kildred guided her to the left at the next landing. They came to a stop in a jagged, toothy archway, and beyond it lay the market in all of its terror. But the market, the market, it was everything she hadn't known to fear. Goblins bustled around, and people too. It was easy to see which ones travelled with the market belonged to them somehow, because they were emaciated and dark-eyed, stumbling through the various stalls like ghosts. The other humans, bright-eyed, laughing, either paired with goblins or in small groups of their own, marvelled at the wonders there. It was grotesque and gorgeous, like the goblins themselves. At a far stall, Lou could see human hands hanging like plucked chickens, some of them dripping blood. The stall next door was ridden with tattoos cut from human flesh. There were bottled things Lou could only assume were human, thick blood and varieties of dark and light urine and greasy yellow fat and something that Lou instinctively felt was spinal fluid. She swallowed hard and looked away from that section. An aisle over she saw fabrics hanging down, all shades of silks and knits and intricate gowns. In the fruits... Of course there was goblin fruit, aisles and aisles of it, rows of barrels and crates and stalls of every colour. She directed them toward this aisle and away from the humans, toward the quinces and pomegranates and plump juicy pears. 
They were all too bright and shiny, like plastic. What would you like to see first? Kildred asked. Neela, take me to Neela. Lou didn't smile. She couldn't, not here. But she said, I don't know, what's the best part? Kildred followed her toward the fruit market, baskets and barrels of perfect apples and peaches and pears, every fruit Lou had ever seen and many she had not. Though she was not hungry, her mouth watered. She wondered if this was another enchantment, another glamour. Something in her itched, as if she'd never feel quite whole if she didn't have a piece of goblin fruit right now. There's nothing quite like it, he said, nodding his head towards a crate. He was trying to lure her, she knew, to entice. But Joss had warned her, eat nothing. She thought of the gold coin, the pomegranate on the face, and shuddered. What do you want? Kildred asked. Surely you've come seeking something. Lou didn't know what to say. It wasn't like she could ask for Neela or the antidote. Instead, she tried to look bored, surveying the market. This all looks so... pedestrian. She grabbed a peach and sunk her nails into the tender flesh. It was ripe, just in that moment between peak juiciness and before it teetered into too soft, into decay. There are no delights here that I wouldn't find above, she said. She tossed the peach in the air, caught it, and let it roll off her fingers back into the barrel. The vendor hissed at her, but Lou kept her composure. Then I suppose we have to find you something more daring, shall we? Kildred said, looping his arm through Lou's. It was too intimate, too much taken that she did not offer, but she merely clenched her jaw and went with him. She tried not to look at the fruit or the wares as they passed, because every time she did, she wanted them more. They were halfway through the market, keeping to the fringes, when someone grabbed her leg. She gasped, nearly tripping. A green, bloody hand wrapped round her ankle. Lou looked down to find a goblin woman, old and hunched, cloaked in heavy black fabric that covered most of her body. Beware, the goblin said from the shadows of her robe. Lou gaped down at her, killed a double back, laughing. Ah, you've already attracted attention. Who are you? Lou snarled, masking her fear with anger. She's nothing, Kildred answered for her, pulling Lou forward, disgraced. The woman's hand fell free and she laughed, leaning forward onto her clawed hands. The hood of her cloak fell back, revealing her face and her empty, dark eye sockets. Jewels and feathers fell from the sockets as she laughed, clattering to the ground and floating from the empty spaces like she was some awful, molting creature. It wasn't nearly the most horrible thing Lou had seen. The body stalls in the market were far worse, but there was something horribly unsettling about the sharp points of the woman's teeth, the lines of dried blood crossed between them. Come by, she cried as Lou and Kildred left her. Come by. Lou swallowed hard. She knew the market would be full of terrors, but this, this was one of their own. She turned forward, tried to put on a brave face, tried to follow Kildred, but all she could see was the image of the woman laughing at her, jewels and feathers dripping from her eye sockets like tears. Well, yeah. <laughs> that character's my favourite character, the ones who looks like she's crying feathers and jewels. I mean, that's a memorable character for sure. Yeah, she's very memorable. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of a quick glance at the Goblin Market. I don't have a huge amount to say about it, but um, 
you don't see as much in that section but she uses a lot of like repetition and listing which i think does call to the Mm. poem quite well um obviously prose and poetry are totally different mediums but i think she's got quite a good cadence cadence yeah to the prose as well well there was a lot Um, of like the listing of the body parts and then the fruits and stuff yeah exactly which i think calls to like rosetti's poem quite well um so yeah it's just it's a lot of fun (laughs) um it's kind of gross but i kind of like that yeah exactly like i loved it i thought it was amazing um so yeah that that's me that's not good for maidens i think it's really good for this time of year and it's not long out so you should go and get it Woohoo! And that's me. <laughs> nice. What is your uh, first pick? <coughs> so uh, before I start, I'm recovering from COVID. <laughs> so if my voice is off, it's because I didn't have one. <laughs> um, so my first Halloween read uh, is The Clockwork Girl by Anna Mazzola. It came out this year. Um, I read it in the summer, but I wish that I had waited until now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's very gothic-y, uh, it's very dark academia mystery mm-hmm. vibes, mm-hmm. um, and it's set in Paris in 1750, so about 40 years before the French Revolution, because uh, we know that I love a book set in Paris for some <laughs> reason. So, yeah, the book follows 23-year-old Madeleine Chastel, who is the daughter of a madam, and she's grown up in her mother's brothel. Um, so immediately grim as fuck Mm -hmm. but she's now being sent to work as a chambermaid because she's no use as a prostitute due to a facial injury Okay. because of her greedy mother's tendency to sell out her daughters for the highest price she's not just any chambermaid she is placed into the hands of a police captain and sent undercover by him to work as a maid for a mysterious clockmaker whose otherworldly clockwork creations have raised suspicion among the higher in society. Because it's the, you know, it's the time where science and magic are melding. Yeah. Um, So she's given 30 days to figure out what he's up to and report back, or basically dot dot dot. Yeah. But when Madeline enters the clockmaker's house she finds there are many, many, many mysteries, including that of the clockmaker's genius daughter, Veronique, who is about 17, and it's her that she's sort of the chambermaid for. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the fact that the children in this neighbourhood keep disappearing. Mm. So throughout the book, we switch between Madeline and Ver- Veronique's points of view, Um, which I enjoy a switching point of view anyway, but we also have an occasional interjection from a woman named Jeanne, who we find out through her narration as a mistress to someone very, very important, and we see her story sort of creeping towards the girls Mm -hmm. as it goes on. So it does have that, like, kind of... It's, like, two elements. There's, like, a gothic thriller and, like, a detective story Mm. happening at the same time. So I think you'd really love this book, actually, because it feels very fresh, but it employs so many gothic tropes. Yeah. You've got, like, this big creepy labyrinthine house. You've got doppelgangers. You've got a fascination with scientific development. You've got reanimation. Mm -hmm. And, like, probably the main theme would be the focus 
on like the line between life and death in the body. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to focus on those aspects of the book rather than the plot, because obviously it's a mystery and I don't want to give it away. Yeah. But I thought I'd start off by just reading the very beginning of the book, because it is grim from the word go. <laughs> and it's one of the most like body imagery packed beginnings that I've ever heard. So okay. we're on a theme. Oh, that's weird. I've Oh, that's weird, Emily. <laughs> I've just opened this book and the dedication is for my sister Laura. Oh, <laughs> weird. <laughs> Today was the day my man priced up the girls. Best on such days to slip away. That was why Madeline now walked past the slaughterhouse where the blood had congealed into a dark gash across the snow and where carcasses hung from hooks, pale arses to the morning sky. In the glassy air, her ungloved hands smarted, the skin of her knuckles cracked and raw. Not much of a day to be out for a walk, but damned if she was staying home to listen. Besides, there was something she needed, something that couldn't wait. Madeline turned off the Rue Pavé to enter the labyrinth of the Corte Montorguel. The alley's too narrow, the house is too high, so that the sun was kept out and a stench kept in, the streets dark and rank as the devil's conard. Ancient buildings leaned into one another like crowded teeth, their crumbling brickwork patched together, their windows stuffed with rags. Now and again a face emerged from the shadows, a child like as not, with the telltale features of hunger, generations deep. Better here, though, among the lowest of the low, la ba... I can't be speaking French for Covid, I'm sorry. (laughs) Among the lowest of the low, as they called them, the slum dwellers and the doorway lurkers, the homeless and the shoeless, then at Maman's so-called academy, where the monthly inventory would be in full swing. It was a crying shame, her mother always said, and truly she took no pleasure in it, but she was running a business, and human flesh was a damn changeable thing. Breasts ripened or withered, diseases took root, Skin stretched or pitted, sores filled and burst. Babes, despite a barrage of precautions, were wont to begin and blessed difficult to get out. And once in a while something would happen, just as it had happened to Madeline, to half a girl's value in the space of a day. There'd always be at least one girl, knocked up or knocked down, who would, in my man's phrasing, be put out to pasture. Only there was no pasture in the back streets of Paris. There was a black river of refuse, broken bottles, fish heads. Right now in January there was sleet and snow, blunt figures huddled together in doorways, and the occasional stiffened corpse. I'm actually just going to shut there. Yeah. I was just going to stop there, um, because I feel like you get it. Yeah. You get the picture. Um, So immediately we have the sense that this is a book about bodies. Yes. Um, We've got prostitution, we've got the fragility of people being in the cold, the smell, pregnancy, injury... All of the things. And the whole book is like this. Like, every single page is packed with reminders that everyone has a body. Mm. Like, you can never forget that you're trapped in a body and that these characters in particular are trapped in female bodies, which is like a secondary prison under the patriarchal rule. Yeah. So, yeah, you just really never stop feeling that throughout, like, a 300-odd page book, which I think is quite impressive. But the idea that the body is a prison isn't just for the female characters in this book because the body imagery goes from like grim like this to kind of otherworldly and spooky 
when we reach the house of the clockmaker, Dr. Reinhardt. Mm. Madeline arrives and she is introduced to a whole cast of other like servants. There's the valet, the housekeeper, all of these people, which make the book really fun. Mm. But Dr. Reinhardt is your usual sort of severe eccentric genius. And this is the first passage where we as readers are introduced to his inventions. After breakfast, Agathe took Madeline about the house, opening the doors to the parlour, the workroom, the bedrooms, the dining room, explaining the chores to be carried out in each, how the weekly wash was to be done, the parquet polished and the silver cleaned, the cupboards scrubbed out with vinegar, the floors spread with lye, then sand, the boards scoured until they were spotless. Though Agathe showed her everything she must do about the place, Madeline had a sense of things being kept back, of some secret just out of sight. Every room they entered was richly furnished with heavy velvets and silks of burgundy, chocolate, forest green. The windows hung with damask drapes so that the house seemed to suck in most light and sound, swallowing footsteps and what she thought might be voices, leaving only the ceaseless ticking. Everywhere she went, the clocks appeared. On shelves, on cupboards, on mantelpieces, looming at her from hallway walls. In a room to the front of the house, Agathe unlocked a mahogany cupboard, saying, This is where he keeps the finished ones, for showing to potential customers. She opened the cupboard doors and stood back, arms folded, nodding to Madeline to take a look. And there, staring out of the shadows, sat the most curious creatures Madeline had ever seen. A brown mouse studded all over with hundreds of tiny pearls, an enamel owl with eyes of a gate and feathers of silver and gold, a turtle made with real turtle shell, gilded Neptune sitting astride it. Sensing motion, Madeline looked to see a silver bat with leather wings hanging from the very top shelf. I thought it best to show you them now so you don't get affrighted, Agathe said. They move when he winds them, you see, and they've a nasty habit of making sudden movement on their own. It's Joseph who usually keeps the keys. Myself, I keep well away. Madeline stared at the mouse, at its blind red eyes and fine golden whiskers. Valuable, certainly, but queer. What are they, though? How do they work? How does he make them move? Agathe shrugged. They move as the clocks do, with screws and springs and wires and such, but I can't say I understand how he makes them. Seems much like magic to the likes of me. I'll shut them back away. As the doors closed, Madeline took one last look at the mechanical bat, at the thin leather stretched skin-like over silver bones, imagining the hands that made it. What kind of man would take care to make such uncanny things? This is the master clock, Agathe informed Madeline, as they left the room and passed an immense walnut clock in the hallway. The clock against which all others must keep time. It's Joseph's job to wind them, but you must keep an ear out for when they're striking correctly. It is one of your most important tasks in this house, to ensure that nothing slips. Madeline nodded, but her nervousness had deepened to fear, her stomach tightened to a knot. She'd never been so aware of each passing moment, of how little time she had to succeed. Thirty days, he'd said, and she knew if she failed, if she was discovered, there'd be no second chances, no reprieve. The police would hang her out to dry. Mm. I wondered if it was going to go into like automaton territory. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so two things I absolutely love about this is the idea of the constantly ticking clocks. Like obviously it's such an in-your-face mortality 
metaphor, but I love that gothic genre books just have no chill. Yeah. And it's just like, there's all the clocks in this house, and that's terrifying. I'm like, great. And I like that the passage starts and ends with the idea of cyclical movement, Mm -hmm. so like the chores that need done every day Mm. and things like that. Yeah. The second thing is that obviously these creepy little clockwork creatures are so spooky and uncanny, and I imagine them in my head moving like something in a Tim Burton film. Yeah. Which is just fun for Halloween. Yeah. But one really... the bat one. The bat one. (laughs) Yeah. I knew you'd want the bat one. (laughs) A thing that stood out to me was the gilded Neptune. Because Neptune obviously is the god of the ocean, which is why he's on a turtle. Mm -hmm. But in astrology, Neptune is also the planet that was thought to rule intuition, dreams and delusion. Oh, yeah. So Dr. Reinhardt is an academic, but there's obviously something like magical and uncanny about his creations. And there's a lot in this book, which is also very female gothic, about the line between sanity and insanity. Uh Like Madeline has to spend a lot of time convincing herself that she's believing what she's seeing in this house. Yeah. And I like to think that the Neptune is a little reference to that. And I like to think of the bat being like a Dracula reference as well. Um, So yeah, that's fun. And then I think I'm just going to do one or two more wee passages Mm -hmm. because it's got some real good creepy bits um (laughs) so a few pages later it's madeline's first night and obviously she has to sneak out of bed to explore the house and snoop through the office yep um you will love this (laughs) by the evening madeline was exhausted drained by the strangeness of it all the constant chores the strain of playing a part she'd have to force herself to stay awake mind she needed to get into that workroom Madeline waited until everyone was in bed, the house in darkness, until she could hear the soft sound of Edmay's snoring from the next room. She waited until the house creaked with the sounds of the night. Then she took her nub of candle and crept downstairs, her bare feet almost noiseless on the polished floor, and hesitated outside the workroom door. After a moment, she pushed down the handle. It was open. Inside, the room smelled of the oxgall gas used to clean the floors, the animal reek masked by alcohol. The only sound was the slow ticking of the large table clock. Keeping her hand as still as she could, she used the candle to light a rush lamp, which she carried with her as she went from cupboard to cupboard, illuminating the dark alcoves within. Her breathing was shallow, her heart beat quick, as the flame picked out the oddities on the shelves. A small skull, tiny bottles of unknown solutions, a tray of coloured glass eyes. On opening a drawer, she found it full of varnished human bones. Could any of these be evidence of his strange experiments, or was it the sort of thing every anatomist kept, eyeballs stuffed in their cupboards and drawers? How on earth was she to know what would count as unnatural? To her, none of these things looked normal. She opened the bureau and rifled through it for Reinhardt's letters and notebooks. One by one, she took out the papers and peered at them, trying to find something that might give a clue as to the nature of the man, something that might interest Camille. Camille is the policeman. There was a bill from a goldsmith, other invoices from tradesmen, a list of what seemed to be tools, a diagram of a piece of machinery, a drawing of some kind of cage. Nothing that seemed important. Then again, she didn't know exactly what she was looking for. Quick as she could, she returned the invoices and moved on to the bureau drawers. There she found a letter from someone called Lemaitre, telling Reinhardt about his discoveries in Leyden. 
about his theories on animals and souls, with strange pictures in the margins of which she couldn't make head nor tail. She searched for a few minutes more, but found nothing of obvious value. If Reinhardt did carry out strange experiments, he didn't keep his writings on them here. Before she left, Madeline walked to the far end of the room, beyond the work table and benches and towards the cabinets at the back. In the wavering semi-darkness, she could see only the silvery edges to objects, but she made out the outline of a long rectangular box, the onyx gleam of black paint. If she'd had more time, she might have struggled to make herself open it. As it was, worried that someone might come upon her at any moment, she prized open the lid and let it rest on the wall behind. There, in the glimmer of the candle flame, she saw a girl. Her dark hair laid out across her shoulders, her face white as bone, eyes open, dead. Madeline felt panic rise in her throat like bitter juice. He may be dangerous, Camille had warned, but dear God, she hadn't expected this. So young the girl was and beautiful, seemingly unmarked. There was no smell of death, no tang of blood. She was like a saint embalmed in a glass coffin, preserved somehow from decay. The horror pulsed through Madeline's veins, but she must keep her wits together. As Madeline brought the lamp closer, the flame flickered, lighting the girl's face in such a way that she knew at once there was something wrong with her skin. It was not skin. Madeline blinked and the seam seemed to rearrange itself. What she saw now was a doll. Madeline brought the lamp still closer and leant over the model. The eyes glinted in the candlelight, glass. The skin shone as only wax could do. And yet, as she moved the lamp up and down, she saw that this was no simple doll. Nothing like the crude waxworks she'd seen in travelling shows. She was perfect. Horrible. Every feature, every contour, was precise and true. Peering closely, Madeline saw the delicate veins painted on her chest, the pink of her nipple. She shuddered. The whole of her was too real, too close to the truth. The candle light rippled and it was almost as if she moved. With a sudden movement, Madeline shut the box. Trying to calm her breathing, Madeline returned everything to its original position, relit her stump of candle, snuffed out the rushlight, and quietly closed the door behind her, feeling a surge of relief, tinged with unease. She'd found nothing to suggest perverted experiments, nothing obviously wrong, nothing to confirm what sort of man Reinhardt was. Yet she felt, just as she had when Agathe had shown her about the house, that something was lurking just out of sight. As she emerged into the hallway, she had a strong sensation that someone was watching her. But it was only the clocks, their blank faces seeming to observe her as she made her way past them and back upstairs to her room. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I hate it. <laughs> it's horrible. Um, I know how much you love dolls and puppets, mm-hmm. so I had to include that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. We're skirting the uncanny, the creepy, the body. Um, And it wouldn't be a gothic novel without a doppelganger. And so, a light spoiler. This doll looks very like Reinhardt's daughter. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I figured something like that was coming. (laughs) Which is not really... Which is a very minor detail in how wild this plot gets. But yeah, I thought I'd just finish this one with giving you a short passage from her narration to give you an idea of her voice and how it compares to Madeline's. Veronique's story is that she was sent to a convent when she was very young. She doesn't have a mother. 
before Madeline gets there, she's only been home in Paris with her dad for about two weeks. Okay. And while she's been in the convent, he's been sending her things to learn. Okay. Because he, unlike a lot of fathers, doesn't want to just marry her off. He wants to train her. Okay. So that's very unusual. Mm-hmm. She remembered as a series of flickering images, packing up her books and dolls, the drive through the night, then the sight of the convent, a medieval stone fortress, its walls stark against the milky dawn sky. When they entered, the quietness of the place had closed itself around her. No shouts, no vehicles, no ticking clocks, just the occasional clicking of rosary beads and the shuffle of feet on stone. She remembered, too, the Reverend Mother Abbess as she greeted them, a flabby, smiling face, white as fish flesh, squeezed into her wimple. Welcome, Muffy. We're glad you have joined us. I'm passing you into the safekeeping of our pupil mistress, who looks after all the boarders. This is Sir Cecile. And another woman had stepped forward, taller and thinner, her eyes sharp as flint, and held out a bony hand. Veronique, you must be a brave girl, her father had whispered, pushing her forward, when she'd remained frozen by his side. And she had taken the woman's long, cold fingers, and suspected bravery was only one of the qualities she'd need to survive in this place. We teach them humility, she heard the abbess telling her father as they walked from the room. We teach them the proper ways of this world, with kindness, compassion and love. But the grip on her hand had not been kind as the woman took her away from her father. The expression on her face had revealed no love as she showed Veronique up the stairs and into the long dormitory where she must sleep with the other girls. That bed, she pointed, and it was the last one of about twenty, lined up against the walls as in a hospital or morgue, the girls' sleeping forms shrouded within them. Each bed had a name plaque at the end, save for hers, which was blank and white. On the bed next to hers, the plaque spelled out the name Clementine. Veronique placed her box at the foot of her bed and saw with a start that though the girl lay still, her brown eyes were open, shining. Veronique had heard footsteps outside and looked down from the window to watch her father walking back to his carriage, had watched with the cold understanding as the carriage rolled away. Now she ran her finger over the picture of Theophilos's tree of gilded bronze, its branches filled with clockwork birds. Miles from home, from anyone she knew, from anything she understood, the book of Automata had become not just a storybook, but a friend, a guide. Daedalus and his breathing statues, King Alcanus and his gold and silver watchdogs, they'd been a portal to a world outside the convent, a glimpse of magic beyond the cold dormitory, the sour smell of the refectory, the boredom of constant prayer. She understood that many of the nuns had found a sort of sanctuary here, that their lives outside had been harsher, poorer, more perilous. For a child, however, this was no place at all. Certainly not a child like her, not used to the company of other children, nor the idea of fettering your mind. Aside from Clementine, her only friends were the golden birds and silver mechanical mice of her imagination. As the weeks and then months passed, Veronique resolved that she too would make such things as she saw in the book. She would build creatures that would move and fly and astonish. She would build her own clockwork universe. Veronique's father had written to her every fortnight. His letters had been full not of his life in Paris, but of the automata of past centuries and of the machines he himself wished to build. He'd sent her drawings and explanations of whichever project he was working on. A mechanical owl, a moving hand, a troop of tiny drummers. He'd sent her riddles too, 
mysteries she must solve, puzzles to which she must find the answers. In a place that was often lonely and sometimes frightening, his letters had been a lifeline. Then, when Veronique was older, he'd begun to send her more complex reading materials that he must have insisted be passed to his daughter. Books on clockmaking and mechanics, anatomical books that he told Madeline she must copy from to understand the human form, charts and plans and diagrams. I think that's a typo. That he told, you told Madeline. You told me there is typos in this Yeah, book. there is typos yeah. in this book. I feel like that says he told Veronique she must copy from. Anyway... <laughs> God, get an editor. <laughs> the other girls had giggled at the books, at the naked, hairless figures, but Veronique had known what those figures were. They were her opportunity, her way out of the stonewalled tomb. She had set herself to work, copying each illustration again and again until they resembled the original. While the other girls practised at piano or sewing, she had learned each body part, each tendon, each vein. She had studied the essays and explanations her father sent her and she had learnt Greek and Latin better than any of the other pupils because for her those languages were alive, the languages of science and anatomy. Learn as much as you can, he told her on his parlour room visits. When you're 17, if circumstances permit it, I will teach you myself. Sir Cecile had scoffed at this idea. The borders here are destined for marriage or the veil, and yet you think you're somehow different, do you? More special than everyone else. Yes, she thought, because she already knew she was something the other girls were not. Your father will do as all the other fathers do, and either marry you off, if anyone will have you, or return you to this very convent. Oh no, he will not, Veronique had said to herself, because I will make him see that I am valuable. Because my father is not like other men. More than that, she could not come back here, would not be forced to take the habit. It was one thing to choose this life for oneself. It was quite another for it to be used as prison. Veronique knew what could happen to those locked up in here against their will, as a punishment or by necessity. She knew because she saw it every day in the face of Sir Cecile. Forgive us our trespasses, Veronique thought, because sometimes they are deserved. <laughs> and I just wanted to read that bit because I feel like a huge part of this book is like the debate between like the dangers of knowledge and mm-hmm. like the freedom of knowledge. Yeah. And it's a really interesting sort of dichotomy between Madeline and Veronique that it is kind of like what you were pointing out in the Goblin Market, like it's the angel and the whore dynamic where Veronique is the angel and Madeline's the fallen woman but they're both trying to find the answers in this house to try and be free yeah, which is just very cool so I I could go on and on but I'm going to stop there I just would really recommend this. It has the perfect amount of creepiness, but also enough modern kind of sensibility that it's a really fun read. Yeah. It sounds really good. I would like to read that one. I think you would enjoy it. So, yeah, what is your next Halloween read? My next one, I thought I would do a modern classic, and it's The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. So this came out in 1959, and it's just one of the most perfect gothic haunted house novels it's been turned into the netflix series which was very popular but categorically is not a good adaptation (laughs) it that's very much like horror story with jump scares and while i'm sure that was entertaining to some people that is not what this novel is and i will die on that hill (laughs) um oh oh die on the hill ah hey i didn't even mean that (laughs) um 
So, before I do anything, I want to read out the first line, because it's one of my favourite opening lines ever. Okay. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and cateids are supposed by some to dream. Ooh. How good is that? <laughs> yeah, that's a bold first line. Yeah, I'm just going to read the rest of the opening paragraph as well, because it's also quite bold. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Well, fuck. Yeah, so... (laughs) The Haunting of Hill House is about Hill House. A Dr Montague, who wants to investigate rumours of Hill House being haunted, brings three participants to the manor. So our main character, Eleanor, is reported to have had experiences with a poltergeist as a child. Um, Theodora supposedly has psychic abilities. And Luke is the person who will inherit Hill House after his aunt dies. Uh, she's the one who owns it. Okay. And the plan is literally to just live in the house and document what goes on. And that is the plot of the book. Interesting. I did yeah. not know that. I don't want to say, like, too much, because it is a really short book, so I could very easily spoil <laughs> the ending. But basically, Eleanor begins to get this, like, strange attachment to Hill House. Lots of really weird things happen, and it's generally just a pretty creepy time. <laughs> um, so, nothing is very clear in this book and I mean that as a compliment so for example you have this doctor taking very like a scientific or documentarian approach to what seems to be a haunting Hmm. later some characters come in to do a seance which is obviously quite contrary to science a lot of things happen at night so like maybe some of it's a dream maybe some of it's like a delusion Eleanor's a unreliable narrator. She lies to characters and you see her do it. So you're like, oh, is she lying to us as Ooh. well? It's very messy in the best way. <laughs> um, and Jackson has written Hill House itself to be really sprawling, but also really claustrophobic. Um, and the tension is amazing. It's just a really good gothic terror novel. But my favourite thing about this book and the thing I'm going to look at today is the building itself. Um, because as we know I'm obsessed with buildings and how they can be like personified and made very scary and that is exactly what this book is crammed full of. So this is just a short description of Hill House uh, before Eleanor has even stepped inside. Okay. No human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of line and place which suggests evil in the face of a house and yet somehow a maniac juxtaposition a badly turned angle, some chance of meeting roof and sky, turned Hill House into a place of despair, more frightening because the face of Hill House seemed awake, with a watchfulness from the blank windows and a touch of glee in the eyebrow of a cornice. Almost any house, caught unexpectedly or at an angle, can turn a deeply humorous look on a watching person. Even a mischievous little chimney, or the dormer like a dimple, can catch up a beholder with a sense of fellowship. 
but a house arrogant and hating, never off guard, can be only evil. This house, which seemed somehow to have formed itself, flying together into its own powerful pattern under the hands of its builders, fitting itself into its own construction of lines and angles, reared its great head back against the sky without concession to humanity. It was a house without kindness, never meant to be lived in, not a fit place for people or for love or for hope. Exorcism cannot alter the countenance of a house. Hill House would stay as it was until it was destroyed. I should have turned back at the gate, Eleanor thought. Exorcism... Read that line again! (laughs) Um, Exorcism cannot alter the countenance of a house. Oh! (laughs) That fucking slaps. Yeah. She's such a good writer, like, I can't... Also, the the eyebrow of a cornice or some shit. Oh! Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. So, yeah, I just love Shirley Jackson's description. Like, she's just so clever. She says things that... Like, I would never think to write that, but it makes total sense to me. Oh, yeah. It's just, yeah, she's great. I think this is actually my last quote, but it is a longer one. Um, and it's a description of inside the house, because as if the outside wasn't creepy enough. Yeah. We've got the inside. So this is a scene, I think they've stayed the night already, they're just kind of being shown about the house now, by Dr. Montague. Theodora was puzzled. She stood in the hallway, turning, looking back of her at the staircase, and then around again at the front door. Are there two front doors? she asked. Am I just mixed up? The doctor smiled happily. He had clearly been hoping for some such question. This is the only front door, he said. It is the one you came in yesterday. Theodora frowned. Then why can't Eleanor and I see the tower from our bedroom windows? Our rooms look out over the front of the house, and yet... The doctor laughed and clapped his hands. At last, he said, clever Theodora, this is why I wanted you to see the house by day. Come, sit on the stairs while I tell you. Obediently, they settled on the stairs, looking up at the doctor, who took on his lecturing stance and began formally. One of the peculiar traits of Hill House is its design. Crazy house at the carnival. Precisely. Have you not wondered at our extreme difficulty in finding our way around? An ordinary house would not have had the four of us in such confusion for so long, and yet time after time we choose the wrong doors, the room we want eludes us. Even I have had my troubles. He sighed and nodded. I dare say, he went on, that old Hugh Crane expected that someday Hill House might become a showplace, like the Winchester House in California, or the many Octagon Houses. He designed Hill House himself, remember, and, I have told you before, he was a strange man. Every angle, and the doctor gestured towards the doorway, every angle is slightly wrong. Hugh Crane must have detested other people and their sensible, squared-away houses because he made his house to suit his mind. Angles which you assume are the right angles you are accustomed to and have every right to expect are true are actually a fraction of a degree off in one direction or another. I am sure, for instance, that you believe that stairs you are sitting on are on a level because you are not prepared for stairs which are not level. They moved unsteadily and Theodora put out a quick hand to take hold of the balustrade, as though she felt she might be falling. Or actually on a very slight slant towards the central shaft. 
The doorways are all a very little bit off-centre. That may be, by the way, the reason the doors swing shut unless they are held. I wondered this morning whether the approaching footsteps of you two ladies upset the delicate balance of the doors. Of course, the result of all these tiny aberrations of measurement adds up to a fairly large distortion in the house as a whole. Theodora cannot see the tower from her bedroom window because the tower actually stands at the corner of the house. From Theodora's bedroom window it is completely invisible, although from here it seems to be directly outside her room. The window of Theodora's room is actually 15 feet to the left of where we are now. Theodora spread her hands helplessly. Golly, she said. I see, Eleanor said. The veranda roof is what misleads us. I can look out my window and see the veranda roof, and because I came directly into the house and up the stairs, I assumed that the front door was right below. Although really... You can only see the veranda roof, the doctor said. The front door is far away. It and the tower are visible from the nursery, which is the big room at the end of the hallway. We will see it later today. It is, and his voice was saddened, a masterpiece of architectural misdirection. The double stairway at Chambord. Then everything is a little bit off-centre, Theodora asked uncertainly. That's why it all feels so disjointed. What happens when you go back to a real house? Eleanor asked. I mean, uh, well, a real house. It must be like coming off a shipboard, Luke said. After being here for a while, your sense of balance could be so distorted that it would take you a while to lose your sea legs or your hill house legs, could it be? He asked the doctor that what people have been assuming were supernatural manifestations were really only a result of the slight loss of balance in the people who live here. The inner ear, he told Theodora wisely. It must certainly affect people in some way, the doctor said. We have grown to trust blindly in our senses of balance and reason, and I can see where the mind might fight wildly to preserve its own familiar stable patterns against all evidence that it was leaning sideways. Oh dear. <laughs> I don't yeah. like that. No. <laughs> I love the mention of the Winchester Mystery House. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it. Yeah. So it's this crazy house in California that was purposefully designed to be confusing. Mm. Um, there's like doorways and stairwells that lead to nothing. There's like a door that opens in the building and it just goes to the outside, but you're like two floors up. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's got this like utterly bizarre history supposedly sarah winchester who designed it was told by like a psychic that i think it was like she would die if construction ever stopped oh so she would just constantly be making the builders like add stuff or like change stuff and i think it like i'm sure it was like 80 years or something it was just constantly being built on so it's this absolutely insane building that was a tangent i would just really like to see it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, actually i think there's a good and that's why we drink episode about it so i'll find that and i'll link it nice in the show notes if anyone's interested but yeah that's the haunting of hell house there's so much to go into but i kind of purposely kept it vague because yeah it's, it's a short book so you you can you get into the story very quickly but i do really re- recommend it um if you liked the netflix show and like are then reading this after prepare for it to not be the same yeah <laughs> um but i promise it's very scary in like a different kind of way and yeah i really want to read more of shirley jackson uh, i'm sure i will i do also recommend her novella we have always lived in the castle 
um, that's kind of just as disturbing as this book but I don't have a copy of it so I couldn't talk about it today ah fair um, but yeah I love that one as well so that is also a recommendation I um, love the idea that like the building of the house is what made it fucked up yes. you know like that it was fucked up from the beginning yeah there is also a, a family history as there is with gothic mm. novels that is also not great and then yeah without spoiling too much obviously Eleanor already has a history of a poltergeist supposedly so yeah. that's a whole thing <laughs> it's just like oh there's like this amazing bit where they kind of realize they kind of talk about it in that passage where they keep sort of getting confused about where they're going and they realize that the house is trying to split them up Ooh. so that they're never like all together <laughs> It's just, oh, so good. <laughs> I I find that really interesting, though, because I remember, like, when you were saying about that first passage that you would never think to write that, mm. and, like, I would be the same. But I remember once I did try and write a poem, and it was about the relationship between buildings and a sky on a skyline. Mm. And, mm-hmm. like, I was trying to sort of find all these images and, like, metaphors to talk about, like not just personify the buildings but like something about that first passage about like that it like reared up into the sky yeah and something like that and then like a, a, a line the, like the two lines crossing made something very wrong yeah like the idea that you can put a building where there wasn't a building and mm-hmm. then create like an energy yeah. or something i don't know something about that is like peak scary yeah definitely so i yep. appreciate that <laughs> nice uh, what's your next one well <laughs> i could not do a halloween special without talking about my favorite gothic novel of all time <laughs> which is the picture of dorian gray oh, by yes. oscar wilde which i also love should say novella because it's very short yeah but yeah i basically this is my pitch for people that haven't read this book to read this book Good. okay um <laughs> Because I feel like people have seen the film mm. or they think they know what the book is going to be mm-hmm. and you just, you don't, right? If you've not read it, you don't know what it's going to be. So yeah. for anyone who isn't familiar, this is the story about a beautiful young man named Dorian Gray who makes a wish on a portrait of himself that he will stay forever young and beautiful and that only the portrait will age. And it comes true. Yes. That's the premise. And I want you to talk about this book because like The Clockwork Girl, it's really focused on the body and the senses, line between body and the soul, life and death. But unlike The Clockwork Girl, which deals with a lot of very visceral subject matter, this is a book about beauty and art. And so it engages the senses and like pleasure as well. Mm -hmm. And so it engages the senses in different ways. So I thought I'd start by reading out the scene where the wish takes place. We have three characters... We have Dorian Gray, who is the muse. We have Basil Horward, who is the painter. And we have Lord Henry, who is my favourite. Yeah. Who some people think is a sort of Oscar Wilde self-insert. Because he comes away with a lot of pithy little lines that you feel like maybe Oscar Wilde just wanted to say. (laughs) So in this scene, Basil has just painted Dorian and he's finishing off the painting while Dorian and Lord Henry sit outside. And these quotes are long because he writes long, so just (laughs) bear with. Let us go and sit in the shade, said Lord Henry. 
Parker has brought out the drinks, and if you stay any longer in this glare, you will be quite spoiled, and Basil will never paint you again. You really must not allow yourself to become sunburnt. It would be unbecoming. What can it matter? cried Dorian Gray, laughing, as he sat down on the seat at the edge of the garden. It should matter everything to you, Mr Gray. Why? Because you have the most marvellous youth, and youth is one the one thing worth having. I don't feel that, Lord Henry. No, you don't feel it now. Some day when you are old and wrinkled and ugly, when thought has seared your forehead with its lines and passion branded your lips with its hideous fires, you will feel it, and you will feel it terribly. Now, wherever you go, you charm the world. Will it always be so? You have a wonderfully beautiful face, Mr Grey. Don't frown, you have. And beauty is a form of genius. It's higher, indeed, than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is one of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime, or the reflection in dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has its divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. You smile. Ah. When you've lost it, you won't smile. People sometimes say that beauty is only superficial. That may be so. But at least it is not so superficial as thought is. To me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Yes, Mr Grey, the gods have been good to you. But what the gods give, they quickly take away. You have only a few years in which to live really, perfectly and fully. When your youth goes, your beauty will go with it, and then you will suddenly discover that there are no triumphs left for you, or have to content yourself with those mean triumphs that the memory of your past will make more bitter than defeats. Every month as it wanes brings you nearer to something dreadful. Time is jealous of you, and wars against your lilies and your roses. You will become sallow and hollow-cheeked and dull-eyed. You will suffer horribly. Realise your youth while you have it. Don't squander the gold of your days listening to the tedious, trying to improve the hopeless failure or giving away your life to the ignorant, the common and the vulgar. These are sickly aims, the false ideals of our age. Live. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Let nothing be lost upon you. Be always searching for new sensations. Be afraid of nothing. A new hedonism, that is what our century wants. You might be its visible symbol. With your personality, there is nothing you could not do. The world belongs to you for a season. The moment I met you, I saw that you were quite unconscious of what you really are and of what you really might be. There was so much in you that charmed me that I felt I must tell you something about yourself. I thought how tragic it would be if you were wasted. For there is such a little time in your youth that will last. Such little time. The common hellflowers wither, but they blossom again. The laburnum will be as yellow next June as it is now. In a month there will be purple stars on the clematis, and a year after year the green night of its leaves will hold its purple stars. But we never get back our youth. The pulse of joy that beats in us at twenty becomes sluggish. Our limbs fail, our senses rot. We degenerate into hideous puppets, haunted by the memory of the passions of which we were too much afraid, and the exquisite temptations that we had not the courage to yield to. Youth. Youth, there is absolutely nothing in the world but youth. Dorian Gray listened, open-eyed and wondering. The spray of lilac fell from his hand upon the gravel. A furry bee came and buzzed round it for a moment. Then it began to scramble all over the oval, stellated globe of the tiny blossom. 
He watched it with that strange interest in trivial things that we try to develop when things of high import make us afraid, or when we are stirred by some new emotion for which we cannot find expression, or when some thought that terrifies us lays sudden siege to the brain and calls upon us to yield. After a time the bee flew away. He saw it creeping into the stained trumpet of a Tyrrhenian convolvulus. Convolvulus. Ooh, fun word. <laughs> the flower seemed to quiver and then swayed gently to and fro. Suddenly the painter appeared at the door of the studio and made staccato signs for them to come in. They turned to each other and smiled. I'm waiting, he cried. Do come in. The light is quite perfect and you can bring your drinks. They rose up and sauntered down the walk together. Two green and white butterflies fluttered past them and in the pear tree at the corner of the garden a thrush began to sing. You are glad you have met me, Mr Grey, said Lord Henry, looking at him. Yes, I am glad now. I wonder, shall I always be glad? Always. That is a dreadful word. It makes me shudder when I hear it. Women are so fond of using it. They spoil every romance by trying to make it last forever. It is a meaningless word too. The only difference between a caprice and a lifelong passion is that the caprice lasts a little longer. As they entered the studio, Dorian Gray put his hand upon Lord Henry's arm. In that case, let our friendship be a caprice, he murmured, flushing at his own boldness, then stepped up on the platform and resumed his pose. Lord Henry flung himself into a large wicker armchair and watched him. The sweep and dash of the brush on the canvas made the only sound that broke the stillness, except when now and then Hallward stepped back to look at his own work from a distance. In the slanting beams that streamed through the open doorway, the dust danced and was golden. The heavy scent of roses seemed to brood over everything. After about quarter of an hour, Hallward stopped painting, looked for a long time at Dorian Gray, and then for a long time at the picture, biting the end of one of his huge brushes and frowning. It is quite finished, he cried at last, and stooping down he wrote his name in long vermilion letters on the left-hand corner of the canvas. Lord Henry came over and examined the picture. It was certainly a wonderful work of art, and a wonderful likeness as well. My dear fellow, I must congratulate you most warmly, he said. It is the finest portrait of modern times. Mr Grey, come over and look at yourself. The lad started as if awakened from some dream. Is it really finished, he murmured, stepping down from the platform. Quite finished, said the painter, and you have sat splendidly today. I'm awfully obliged to you. That is entirely due to me, broke in Lord Henry, isn't it, Mr Grey? Dorian made no answer, but passed listlessly in front of the picture, and turned towards it. When he saw it, he drew back, and his cheeks flushed for a moment with pleasure. A look of joy came into his eyes, as if he had recognised himself for the first time. He stood there motionless and in wonder, dimly conscious that Hallward was speaking to him, but not catching the meaning of the words. The sense of his own beauty came on him like a revelation. He'd never felt it before. Basil Hallward's compliments had seemed to him to be merely the charming exaggerations of friendship. He had listened to them, laughed at them, forgotten them. They had not influenced his nature. Then had come Lord Henry Wotton and his strange panegyric on youth, his terrible warning of its brevity. That had stirred him at the time, and now as he stood gazing at the shadow of his own loveliness, the full reality of the description flashed across him. Yes, there would be a day when his face would be wrinkled and wizen, his eyes dim and colourless, the grace of his figure broken and deformed. The scarlet would pass away from his lips and the gold steal from his hair. The life that was to make his soul would mar his body. 
he would become dreadful, hideous and uncouth. As he thought it, a sharp pang of pain struck through him like a knife and made each delicate fibre of his nature quiver. His eyes deepened into amethyst and across them came a mist of tears. He felt as if a hand of ice had been laid upon his heart. Don't you like it? cried Hallward at last, stung a little by the lad's silence, not understanding what it meant. Of course he likes it, said Lord Henry. Who wouldn't like it? It is one of the greatest things in modern art. I will give you anything you like to ask for it. I must have it. It is not my property. Whose property is it? Dorian's, of course, answered the painter. He is a very lucky fellow. How sad it is, murmured Dorian Gray, with his eyes still fixed upon his own portrait. How sad it is. I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful, but this picture will remain young. It will never be older than this particular day of June. If it were only the other way. If it were I who was to always be young, and the picture that was to grow old. For that, for that I would give everything. Yes, there is nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. You would hardly care for such an arrangement, Basil, cried Lord Henry, laughing. It would be rather hard lines on your work. I should very strongly object, said Hallward. Dorian turned and looked at him. I believe you would, Basil. You like your art better than your friends. I am no more to you than a green bronze figure. Hardly as much, I dare say. The painter stared in amazement. It was so unlike Dorian to speak like that. What had happened? He seemed quite angry. His face was flushed and his cheeks burning. Yes, he continued, I am less to you than your ivory Hermes or your silver fawn. You will like them always. How long will you like me? Till I have my first wrinkle, I suppose. I know now that when one loses one's good looks, whatever they may be, one loses everything. Your picture has taught me that. Lord Henry Wotton is perfectly right. Youth is the only thing worth having. When I find that I am growing old, I shall kill myself. Oh, I love the dramatics. He's so dramatic. (laughs) I also just like, I'm not going to read the whole bit of this, but uh, there's a bit just in the next page where he says, I'm jealous of everything whose beauty does not die. I'm jealous of the portrait you've painted of me. And, uh... Da, 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 da. I am in love with it, Basil. It is a part of myself. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oscar Wilde really went, here's the mission statement of this book. <laughs> yeah. Do not miss this message. <laughs> I absolutely love the long sentences. Mm-hmm. The funniest bit of this entire book is don't squander the gold of your days listening to the tedious <laughs> in a three-page soliloquy. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, obviously, this novel is really philosophical, and one of its main concerns is the difference between, oh, she's about to get scholarly, (laughs) aestheticism and decadence. Mm -hmm. So aestheticism, for those who don't know, which Wilde himself likely subscribed to, Mm. was the idea that art should exist just simply for art's sake, and that art wasn't required to have morality assigned to it. Mm -hmm. But this book acts as a kind of cautionary tale to that, because the more that Dorian indulges in sensory pleasures in that hedonism so he does a lot of sex a lot of drugs a lot of like beautiful things rock and roll <laughs> rock and roll yeah <laughs> he buys loads of sh- stuff yeah, like he yeah. decorates his rooms all crazy yeah. the more that his painting so his soul becomes corrupted but obviously no one can see that about him so he's kind of untouchable mm-hmm. and if anyone wants to know more about 
decadence and aestheticism they should read the preface of this book and they should read about the preface of this book Mm. because it's wonderful but I can't get into that right now (laughs) so yeah I think the thing I didn't know about this book before I read it was how funny it is in delivering that message Mm -hmm. I genuinely think that the banter between Dorian and Lord Henry is like so entertaining yeah because Dorian's so overblown and ridiculous but like that is what's so creepy and sinister about him. Mm. There is a passage where Dorian tells Henry that he's fallen in love with an actress named Sybil Vane. And this is what he says. Oh, he calls Henry Harry for some reason. The play was good enough for us, Harry. It was Romeo and Juliet. I must admit that I was rather annoyed at the idea of seeing Shakespeare done in such a wretched hole of a place. Still, I felt interested in a sort of way. At any rate, I determined to wait for the first act. There was a dreadful orchestra, presided over by a young Hebrew who sat at a cracked piano that nearly drove me away, but at the last, the drop scene was drawn up and the play began. Romeo was a stout elderly gentleman with corked eyebrows, a husky tragedy voice and a figure like a beer barrel. Mercutio was almost as bad. He was played by the low comedian who had introduced gags of his own and was on most friendly terms with the pit. They were both as grotesque as the scenery, and that looked as if it had come out of a country booth. But Juliet. Harry, imagine a girl, hardly 17 years of age, with a little flower-like face, a small Greek head with plated coils of dark brown hair, eyes that were violet wells of passion, lips that were like the petals of a rose. She was the loveliest thing I'd ever seen in my life. You said to me once that the pathos left you unmoved, but that beauty, mere beauty, could fill your eyes with tears, I tell you, Harry, I could hardly see this girl for the mist of tears that came across me. And her voice. I never heard such a voice. It was very low at first, with deep, mellow notes that seemed to fall singly upon one's ear. And then it became a little louder, and it sounded like a flute. And that garden scene had all the tremulous ecstasy that one hears just before dawn when the nightingales are singing. There were moments later on where it had the wild passion of violins. You know how a voice can stir one. Your voice and the voice of Sybil Vane are two things I shall never forget. When I close my eyes, I hear them, and each of them says something different. I don't know which to follow. Why should I not love her? Harry, I do love her. She is everything to me in life. Night after night, I go to see her play. One evening, she is Rosalind. The next evening, she is Imogen. I have seen her die in the gloom of an Italian tomb, sucking poison from her lover's lips. I have watched her wandering through the forest of Arden, disguised as a pretty boy in hose and a doublet and a dainty cap. She has been mad and has come into the presence of a guilty king and given him rue to wear and bitter herbs to taste of. She has been innocent and the black hands of jealousy have crushed her reed-like throat. I have seen her in every age and in every costume. Ordinary women never appeal to one's imagination. They are limited to their century. No glamour ever transfigures them. One knows their minds as easily as one knows their bonnets. One can always find them. There is no mystery in any of them. They ride in the park in the morning and chatter at tea parties in the afternoon. They have their stereotyped smile and their fashionable manner. They are quite obvious. But an actress! How different an actress is! Harry, why didn't you tell me that the only thing worth loving is an actress? Because I've loved so many of them, Dorian. (laughs) Like... I just, it's the, it's the ridiculousness Mm. and then the undercutting is so funny and it's just (laughs) like that all the way through. 
so there's that. There's him being so kind of enamoured by Sybil Vane that he can't stop talking about her. And then, as we know, later on, she's not very good in a play. <laughs> um, she's just kind of average. And yeah. I'm going to just read that little bit. Okay. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes into the green room. The girl was standing there alone with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire. There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him and an expression of infinite joy came over her. How badly I acted tonight, Dorian, she cried. Horribly, he answered, gazing at her in amazement. Horribly. It was dreadful. Are you ill? You have no idea what it was. You have no idea what I suffered. The girl smiled. Dorian, she answered, lingering over his name with long drawn out music in her voice, as though it were sweeter than honey to the red petals of her mouth. Dorian, you should have understood. But you understand now, don't you? Understand what? he asked angrily. Why I was so bad tonight. Why I shall always be bad. Why I shall never act well again. He shrugged his shoulders. You are ill, I suppose. When you are ill, you shouldn't act. You make yourself ridiculous. My friends were bored. I was bored. She seemed not to listen to him. She was transfigured with joy. An ecstasy of happiness dominated her. Dorian, Dorian, she cried. Before I knew you, acting was the only reality of my life. It was only in the theatre that I lived. I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night and Portia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to be godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows and I thought them real. You came, oh my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the sham, the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that Romeo was hideous and old and painted, that the moonlight in the orchard was false, that the scenery was vulgar and the words I had to speak were unreal, were not my words, were not something I wanted to say. You had brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection. You had made me understand what love really is. My love, my Prince Charming, Prince of Life. I've grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. What have I to do with the puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought I was going to be wonderful. I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing and I smiled. What could they know of love such as ours? Take me away, Dorian. Take me away with you where we can be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns me like fire. Oh, Dorian, you understand now what it signifies. Even if I could do it, it would be profanation for me to play at being in love. You've made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love. (laughs) 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 And so it goes on like this. He falls in love with the art of the style over substance and then he regrets that and it turns him cruel. Mm. And... I have one more little 
excerpt that I want to read just to this is a spoiler but it's been out for like over a hundred years so (laughs) people can get over it Uh, he breaks up with Sybil Vane and she kills herself alright because she's heartbroken yeah this is the first of many many cruel and awful things that he does so that's why I've chosen it because it's not a late in the book spoiler yeah this is his reaction (laughs) to that news so I have murdered Sybil Vane said Dorian Gray, half to himself, murdered her as surely as if I had cut her little throat with a knife. Yet the the roses are not less lovely for all that. The birds sing just as happily in my garden. And tonight I am to dine with you, and then go on to the opera, and sup somewhere, I suppose, afterwards. How extraordinarily dramatic life is. If I had read all this in a book, Harry, I think I would have wept over it. Somehow, now that it has happened actually, and to me, it seems far too wonderful for tears. Here is the first passionate love letter I have ever written in my life. Strange that my first passionate love letter should have been addressed to a dead girl. Can they feel, I wonder, those white silent people we call the dead? Sybil, can she feel or know or listen? Oh Harry, how I loved her once. It seems years ago to me now. She was everything to me. Then came that dreadful night. Was it really only last night? When she played so badly and my heart almost broke. She explained it all to me. It was... Terribly pathetic, but I was not moved a bit. I thought her shallow. Suddenly something happened that made me afraid. I can't tell you what it was, but it was terrible. I said I would go back to her. I felt what I had done was wrong. And now she is dead. And then, just just wait, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. It often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, this is Lord Henry. Their, their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, their entire lack of style. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. They give us an impression of sheer brute force and we revolt against that. Sometimes, however, a tragedy that possesses artistic elements of beauty crosses our lives. If these elements of beauty are real, the whole thing simply appeals to our sense of dramatic effect. Suddenly we find that we are no longer the actors but the spectators of the play. Or rather, we are both. We watch ourselves, and the mere wonder of the spectacle enthralls us. In the present case, what is it that has really happened? Someone has killed herself for love of you. I wish that I had ever had such an experience. It would have made me in love with love for the rest of my life. The people who have adored me, there have not been very many, but there have been some, have always insisted on living on, long after I had ceased to care for them, or they to care for me. They have become stout and tedious, and when I meet them, they go in at once for reminiscences. That awful memory of woman. What a fearful thing it is, and what an utter intellectual stagnation it reveals. One should absorb the colour of life, but one should never remember its details. Details are always vulgar. (laughs) It's just, every single passage is amazing. Yeah. And it's so fucked. It's just, like, these are the ultimate fuckboys, and this is the book... (laughs) This book gives them the manual to be yeah. that way, and I honestly love it. So <laughs> it does get very creepy. Um, those weren't particularly Halloweeny bits that I have read out, yeah. But they're my favourite bits, mm. and there is obviously the whole story of like the portrait getting grotesque and Dorian remaining prey, yeah. Um, and it all ends in tears. <laughs> so I would definitely recommend it, but you have to read it with a sense of humour, and I think that's what people don't get. Yeah. Like, that they don't expect 
probably yeah don't expect yeah yeah i think they get it i think it's just it seems like it's, it's not gonna sort be... of marketed that way. no it's not marketed yeah. as a funny book and it's an incredibly funny book so yeah. that is that's my whole spiel nice i also love that one <laughs> Yeah, I didn't really give you a chance to say much in that because oh, I was no, just like, you said it all. <laughs> it's like, what? Oscar said it all. Yeah. <laughs> what is your third one? My third one, I read in the summer actually, but it's very witchy, so it would be perfect for this time of year. And it is Her Majesty's Royal Coven by Juno Dawson, uh, which just has such a cool cover. That is very cool. Uh, so this came out a few months ago, I think at the end of May, and it's the start of a series. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be, I just know that there's another one coming. Um, and it's a very funny book as well, but also with some dark elements, and it's about a group of witches. The bottom of the blurb, which I think sums it up quite well, is Prepare to be bewitched by Juno Dawson's first adult series, a story of ancient prophecies and modern dating, of sacred sisterhood and demonic frenemies. Nice. So, it's fun. <laughs> it's about a group of witches, uh, or a group of friends who all became witches at the same time in their childhood in the 90s. Yes. Um, but now they're in like their 30s and they have all these sort of different life paths, like one's a vet, uh, one's a stay-at-home mum. <laughs> Um, you've got one who is the leader of HMRC, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which is essentially the leader of like the largest coven in the UK. They like protect mundane people against dangers, <laughs> you know. And for just... anyone that's not British, HMRC yeah. is the tax system here. Yeah, I was going to bring that up later. Which is funny. Fine. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's a good wee joke. But yeah, you've got another uh, of the girls who's also running her own coven diaspora the name of course suggesting that it's like for those who don't feel like hmrc is the right fit for them mm. primarily because of race but like for other reasons as well like sexual orientation stuff like that so the crux of the plot is that a prophecy for the end of the world has come about uh, and these childhood friends have to work together to stop that okay happening but it's so much more than that so for example, without spoiling the plot, there's a transgender character, uh, someone who's assigned male at birth, but who identifies as a female and who wants to be in the coven. Okay. But then the witch, who's the head of HMRC, doesn't want this character in her coven. Okay. Because she says that that person's not a real witch. Okay. Uh, so it's absolutely not reaching <laughs> to say that that character is based on J.K. Rowling. Yes. Um, I would say this book is like the best example I've seen of a character who's a terror. <laughs> um, she's written perfectly. She's both ridiculous and terrifying <laughs> at yep. the same time. So yeah, all of that is to say that the book examines like what sisterhood being like in a coven, what being a feminist means... I think it's like done a good job of providing you with like the wholesome female friendship that we love, mm. like woo, witchy sisterhood. But it also points out the importance of regarding like intersectionality yes. in your feminism. So because there's so many points of view between like all these characters, I wasn't sure who to sort of single out today. 
Um, so I decided to pick out two bits that aren't like specifically about certain characters. So one of the characters in this novel is Neve, and she ends up teaching like a few teenagers or like like very young teens who are just learning like what witchcraft is. She kind of does like little study sessions with them. And so I have two passages that are basically like those study sessions that just kind of shows you a bit about like what witchcraft is in this novel's world. So the first lesson that she teaches them is about the first witch, Gaia. Um, so this is basically Neve telling this story to these like teenagers. Okay. <clears throat> In the beginning, none of this was here. Nothing, total nothingness is really hard to imagine though. So let's skip to when everything changed. Before the earth, moon and stars, there were powerful beings who lived in a realm we can't hope to understand. It was endless, eternal. If you want, you can call them gods or demons, although those are words we have given them. They didn't look like anything we know, and we don't have the words to describe them, so I won't even try. Simply put, they are beyond us. One day, one of these almighty beings, the most powerful of all, grew lonesome. She'd roamed eternity, and it was time to stop still a while. She made a home for herself out of herself. She became. Everything there is was made from her. The atoms and molecules, the oceans and mountains, the trees and soil, the sun, the stars, everything. She forged herself into being. She started a glorious chain reaction. The life she created spawned a new life, new species. It was unexpected, but she delighted in all the life she had made. What she didn't know was that, as she fashioned the physical realm, other gods or monsters became trapped here too, and these great beings envied her creation and resented their earthly prison. If they couldn't have it, they'd destroy it in their bids to escape this reality. They weren't mighty enough to fight her. In fact, they were weak in comparison, but they could sow seeds of malcontent in the most powerful of the creatures she made, us. All of our worst traits, anger, hatred, jealousy and greed come from this poison in the well. We, as witches, call them demons. Oh, there are many of them, some powerful, some less so. They hide among us, pouring words in our ears. As the demons fanned the flames of war and murder and famine, Gaia, the mother, fought back. She spoke first to her daughters and later her sons. She taught as well and showed us how to use her gifts. The tools were at our fingertips all along. The demons spoke to us too, offering us earthly and sensual rewards for doing their bidding to be their hands and voices. A selfish warlock or witch can live quite deliciously by using their powers for personal gain, but at what cost? If one takes out more water than one puts in, a pond soon runs dry. As Gaia grew ever older, she relied on her daughters to protect the colossal shell she'd made of herself. The most powerful of her rivals was the demon king, Satan. He tempted many a witch with the lights of the flesh. A great divide erupted which engulfed early witchkind. Covens united and, while they couldn't kill this overlord, they found a way to weaken him. Satan was split into an ungodly trinity of master, trickster and beast, three lesser demons, Belial, Lucifer and Leviathan. 
the first for hate, the next for want, and the last for fear. They were taken far away and contained, perpetually, in prisons of, of earth, fire, air, and water. Of course, that's not to say they don't look for ways out. The Trinity still whispers to man and witch alike, but there's only witches who can guard the threshold between the world of demons and the world of mundanes. We're gatekeepers and protectors. That's why, each year at solstice, new witches in this country make a promise to Gaia. We go to a sacred place in the Pendle Hill and swear our fealty to the Mother. Without her, we are nothing and have nothing. We sacrifice our lives to the cause, custodians of Gaia and her limitless creation. So there you go, that's what being a witch is. <laughs> I really enjoy the idea of something forging when it says, like, she became. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> I'm on a lot of pain medication right now, so I feel like everything I say is just a wee bit slowed down. <laughs> but... I don't think it's coming across. Cool, I'm glad. <laughs> so yeah, I'll just read out the second one now. Uh, this is about witchcraft, like in history that we can actually like recognise. So it's kind of how Juno Dawson has put witchcraft into real life. Nice. We'll never know exactly when the first witches migrated to these shores. There's evidence as early as the Stone Age that there were witches and warlocks here who harnessed Gaia's energy. Certainly, as long as history has been recorded, there have been witches. Healers, medicine women, shamans, seers. We've had many names and we were revered, exalted even, in ancient times. You can chart the decline of witches against the rise of monotheistic religions. One by one, they appropriated magic into spirituality. Spells became miracles. Only certain brands of miracles became acceptable. Although, you will note, many Judeo-Christian beliefs overlap with ours. Was Jesus a warlock? No one knows, but it's thought he communed with nature, healed the sick, and came back from the dead. So, where was I? As religions all around the world began to persecute witches, we were driven into hiding. We developed secret languages and symbols, formed covens and cabals, and operated in the shadows. Now... Cast your minds back to 1522, a year which, in hindsight, changed the path of British witches forever. A powerful young witch called Anne Boleyn discovered her considerable sentience and trained with a coven in France. Anne was different from other witches because she was born of nobility. She was a powerful girl when girls weren't meant to have power, and she wouldn't settle for marrying her cousin. Instead, she set her sights on the throne. Who can say if she enchanted Henry, or if she was just a firecracker in the sack? By far the easiest way to, to bewitch a man, if I'm honest. However, when Anne failed to provide a male heir, the king moved on to the next. Some people accused Anne of witchcraft, others of adultery and incest. Either way, by the time she was beheaded, Anne had firmly established a secret coven within the court of Henry VIII. She also had a daughter, Elizabeth, who eventually became Queen of England in 1558. By all accounts, she was not as powerful as her mother, but she understood the value of the coven, even if she publicly distanced herself from poor headless Anne. You'll not find it in any history books, but it was Elizabeth who founded the first official royal coven in 1560. She was wary of witches, it said, but knew there was no one better to protect her when she was surrounded on all sides by vipers at court. 
Everything was going swimmingly until Elizabeth chose, and I respect her choice, obviously, to not have children. If she had, however, I think we'd be having this lesson in a school rather than in my kitchen. As it was, James, the son of her distant cousin, ascended to the throne. He was no warlock and was terrified of the coven. He feared they'd kill him and place a witch on the throne. In 1604, he passed the Witchcraft Act. <clears throat> Knowing they'd be executed, the witches of Elizabeth's court fled, forced back into hiding while King James oversaw witch trials up and down the country. It was the worst time. Over 500 witches were hung, burned or drowned between then and 1717 when the act was finally scrapped. Of course, during these years, both throne and parliament knew of witches and what we were capable of. Some witches were offered plea deals, if you like, their lives for their service. We were enslaved, forced to assist, or we'd be burned at the stake. That went on for a hundred years until Victoria's long reign. Around that time, spiritualism became very fashionable among the middle classes. As you know, once rich white people start doing something, they very quickly make it legal. Victoria was no different and, when her beloved Albert died, she called on a coven to help her commune with his spirit. Her personal coven also foresaw the final four assassination attempts against the Queen, saving her skin and, increasingly, she relied on oracles to guide her. Obviously witches in the church make for uneasy bedfellows. Victoria decreed that the crown must be protected by witches, but covertly. The church and the coven was, would exist separately from state, but work alongside one another. In 1869, officially, Her Majesty's Royal Coven was formed. Since that year, there has always been a verified coven working with the government. That's not to say there aren't others, look at diaspora, but HMRC is the strongest and largest. When we take the oath, it's HMRC we pledge our service to. If you look hard enough at old photographs, we're there in the background. Healers in the trenches, suffragettes, Bletchley Park oracles, land girls and resistant fighters. Why is it we help in times of crisis? We have a gift. We are stronger than mundanes, plain and simple. We could, and some witches think we should, enslave or dominate our ungifted siblings. But it's HMRC we decided, long ago, that we help and protect mundanes. Regardless of how we've been treated in the past, they are equal in Gaia's eyes. She doesn't favour a witch over a flea. We don't think our powers make us superior. They make us responsible. We are guardians, custodians, not weapons. That's why we fiercely maintain our independence from politicians. They'd have us blowing up countries left, right and centre. They'd have us hexing world leaders the way Russia did with... And then she gets cut off. <laughs> 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 oh that's very funny it is very good i love that like history of just witchcraft that like mingles with actual real life witchcraft yeah stuff in the uk yeah so one thing i just love about this book is the way that like she does that that she like weaves her or she weaves our reality into this world like you said earlier even the title is a play on hmrc government department in the UK, which is sadly not a bit which No, it's, it's uh, taxes. Taxes. <laughs> um, and there's also a lot of like 90s pop culture references, which I just enjoy as a 90s kid. It's very craft um, vibes. Yeah, it's oh, it's 100% inspired by the craft and like just lots of other 
things of that era. There's lots of like horror, witchy pop culture references as well. The character Neve, who's who's one of the characters that I was reading there, her she's like going on a date with someone and they're going to go see Rosemary's Baby. It's like right. stuff, like just little things like that that I think are just quite fun. And yeah, that's kind of me on Her Majesty's Royal Coven. I've not really done a great job at talking about the plot much, but it's just one of those ones that's like really wild. It's just quite fun to see how it plays out um because obviously they're trying to like save the world and they're also like wow our friend is just not that great like (laughs) she's gone a bit mental um, which is the original cancelled ladies (laughs) yeah pretty much so yeah i i also feel like i've not done a great job at showing just how funny it is like there was little sort of funny moments in that but like it is actually genuinely like that's a hilarious book I read it in like two days and it's really chunky. Yeah, <laughs> I like a big boy. Yeah, I like flew through it. It's so fun. Um, if you're not like super into like your gothic or horror, but you want something with like witches and demons mm. and um like magic fighting <laughs> scenes, it's a really good one. So yeah, I love it. I can't wait to see whatever book two is. The cover of it reminds me of. Do you remember the Cherub series? No. It was like. I didn't read all of it, but it was like some sort of adolescent spy academy oh, series. Yeah. Um, and it's something about like the graphics on that cover really remind me of it. Yeah, this is the fairy lit one, so it's like the wrong. So like, if you see it in person, it's like it's that color of pink. Right. Um, but the you one I have is like highlighter pink. yellow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and a little tagline as well, which I forgot to say, is this is one government department you don't want to mess with. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was that was all of my picks. A bit of a weird selection. Um, what is your last one? Well, for my last one, I thought I would, since I'd done a modern gothic and a classic gothic, I thought I would veer into the one thing that I knew you wouldn't. which would be (laughs) contemporary fiction sure so this is a book which i read i think in like 2017 2016 whenever it came out let me yeah i I read it for uni as well 2015 there you go um i read it before i came to uni actually i think i think i read it in either first or second year i think i read it when i had gone to london and i went to daunt books Oh yeah, and I was having a look around, and it was the first time I'd been, and I just happened to see this and pick it up, and then it became like a thing. Yeah. So it is grief is the thing with feathers by Max Porter, and I'm sure that I've mentioned it on here before. Mm. Um, but it's yeah, it's not really a fun Halloween read, but it's a sad <laughs> book about being haunted, is yeah. what I would say. And it's definitely a book for bookish people, which is to say, it's a wee bit pretentious literary fiction vibes. But it is really satisfying, especially if you enjoy poetry. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of black comedy following a dad and his two sons after the death of the wife and mother. And grief comes to visit them in the form of a giant, mischievous and quite sinister crow named Crow. (laughs) So one important thing going into this book is that the author, Max Porter, works in publishing. So he's very into intertextuality. And the dad character in this book is a Ted Hughes scholar. And Ted Hughes, who was a poet married to Sylvia Plath, had a very famous poetry collection called Crow, which he wrote while he was grieving Sylvia Plath. So, 
The fact that the crow is a character in this book is innately linked into grief and writing about grief and all of that stuff, but the crow character also makes this book kind of horror adjacent. I wouldn't say it's horror, but it's quite horrific. It also makes me think of like Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, ravens and crows not exactly the same. But no, but it's for similar, similar vibes. vibes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's being haunted by this crazy bird. Yeah. Um. So, and also, like one of the greatest things about this book is the use of typography and like illustration and just the weird way that it's set out on the page. So, for example, the uh, epigraph of this book is. Um, it's that Emily Dickinson poem that love is all there is, is all we know of love it is enough, the fright should be proportioned to the groove but every noun is scored out and written over in like crazy handwriting <laughs> so it reads that crow is all there is, is all we know of crow it is enough, the crow should be proportioned to the crow <laughs> and it just looks really unnerving Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a fun sad book um, there are three narrators again, Crow, Dad and Boys. The fact that the two boys are one narrator feels very uncanny because they're not twins and you can tell they're two separate people but you never know which one is talking. Yeah, I'm not going to read lots of it out because it's extremely short so you'd, you, like, you could read this book in about an hour mm-hmm. but I am going to read just the first couple pages and then a couple other wee excerpts. Part one is called A Lick of Night. And it starts off with boys. There's a feather on my pillow. Pillows are made of feathers. Go to sleep. It's a big black feather. Come and sleep in my bed. There's a feather on your pillow too. Let's leave the feathers where they are and sleep on the floor. Dad. Four or five days after she died, I sat alone in the living room wondering what to do. Shuffling around, waiting for the shock to give way, waiting for any kind of structured feeling to emerge from the organisational fakery of my days. I felt hung empty. The children were asleep. I drank. I smoked roll-ups out of the window. I felt that perhaps the main result of her being gone would be that I would permanently become this organiser, this list-making trader in clichés of gratitude, machine-like architect of routines for small children with no mum. Grief felt fourth-dimensional abstract, faintly familiar. I was cold. The friends and family who had been hanging around being kind had gone home to their own lives. When the children went to bed, the flat had no meaning. Nothing moved. The doorbell rang and I braced myself for more kindness. Another lasagna, some books, a cuddle, some little potted ready meals for the boys. Of course, I was becoming an expert in the behaviour of orbiting grievers, Being at the epicentre grants a curiously anthropological awareness of everybody else. The overwhelmeds, the affectedly lackadaisicals, the nothing so far as the overstairs, the new best friend of hers, of mine, of the boys, the people I still have no fucking idea who they were. I felt like Earth in that extraordinary picture of the planet surrounded by a thick belt of space junk. I felt it would be years before the knotted string dream of other people's performances of woe for my dead wife would thin enough for me to see any black space again, and of course, needless to say, thoughts of this kind made me feel guilty. But, I thought, in support of myself, everything has changed and she is gone and I can think what I like. She would have proved, because we were always over-analytical, cynical, probably disloyal, puzzled, dinner party post-mortem bitches with kind intentions, hypocrites friends. The bell rang again. 
I climbed down the carpeted stairs into the chilly hallway and opened the front door. There were no streetlights, bins or paving stones. No light or shape, no form at all, just a stench. There was a crack and a whoosh and I was smacked back, winded onto the doorstep. The hallway was pitch black and freezing cold and I thought, what kind of world is it that I would be robbed in my home tonight? And then I thought, frankly, what does it matter? And I thought, please don't wake the boys, they need their sleep, I will give you every penny I own just as long as you don't wake the boys. I opened my eyes and it was still dark and everything was crackling, rustling, feathers. There was a rich smell of decay, a sweet furry stink of just beyond edible food and moss and leather and yeast. Feathers between my fingers, in my eyes, in my mouth, feeding beneath me a feathery hammock, lifting me up a foot above the tiled floor. One shiny jet black eye as big as my face, blinking slowly in a leathery wrinkled socket, bulging out from a football-sized testicle. Shh! And this is what he said. I won't leave until you don't need me anymore. Put me down, I said. Not until you say hello. Put me down, I croaked, and my piss warmed the cradle of his wing. You're frightened, just say hello. Hello? Say it properly. I lay back, resigned, and wished my wife wasn't dead. I wish I wasn't lying terrified in a giant bird embrace in my hallway. I wish I hadn't been obsessing about this thing just when the greatest tragedy of my life occurred. These were factual yearnings. It was bitterly wonderful. I had some clarity. Hello, Crow, I said. Good to finally meet you. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it is a novel about a haunting. Mm. But it is a very nice haunting (laughs) Um, and it's like obviously a big extended metaphor for grief because obviously the crow is an animal that's always around dead things but also they remember everything Mm -hmm. so they're like the perfect symbol and there's some really sweet moments in this book which make it quite a cosy autumnal read if you're not looking for something actively creepy Mm. so I thought I'll just read a couple of wee cosy bits to give you an idea but not very much This is one from later on, and then the dad says, I said to my best friend she would be cross with me for staying the extra day for the end-of-term football party because we'll hit all the holiday traffic. My friend said, you have to stop thinking this way, involving her. There's grief and there's impractical obsession. I was impractically obsessed with her before, I said. Are you seeing anyone, he said, to talk things through? I am, I said. Are they good? Very good. I almost laughed at the thought of Crow in a study, Crow pecking out an invoice, Crow recommended by a GP or available on the NHS, Crow pondering Winnicott with a shake of the head, but grudgingly liking Klein. Yes, I said to my best friend, you don't need to worry, I am being helped. (laughs) And then there's a bit from Crow, because I haven't really read any from Crow, and it's fucking wild. Embrace yourselves. <laughs> Brace yourselves because Crow is... So the the fun thing about Crow is that Crow's like the original trickster as well. Mm-hmm. And this is an excellent part of his narration. This one is true. Once upon a time there was a demon who fed on grief. The delicious aroma of raw shock and unexpected loss came wafting from the doors and windows of a widower's sad home. Therefore the demon set about finding his way in. 
One evening, the babes were freshly washed and the husband was telling them tales when there was a knock on the door. Rat-a-tat-tat. Open up, open up, it's me from 56. It's Keith. Keith Coleridge. I need to borrow some milk. But the sensible father knew there was no number 56 on the quiet little street, so he did not open the door. The next night, the demon tried again. Rat-a-tat-tat. Open up, open up, I'm from parenthesis press. It's Paul. Paul... Graves, I heard the news. I'm truly gutted it's taken me this time to come over. I've brought a pizza and some toys for the boys. But the attentive father knew there had been a Pete from parenthesis and a Phil from parenthesis, but never a Paul from parenthesis, so he did not open the door. The next night, the demon ran at the door, flashing blue and crackling. Rat-a-tat-tat, bang! Bang! Open up, please. We know you're in there. This is an emergency. You have five seconds to open the door or we will smash our way in. But the worldly grieving man knew a bit about the law and sensed a lie. The demon went away and wondered what to do next. He was tabloid despicable, so a powerful plan came to him. Rat-a-tat-tat, knock-knock-knock. Boys, it's me. It's mum. Darling, are you there? Boys, open the door. It's me. I'm back. Sweetheart? Boys? Let me in. And the babes flung their duvets back in abandon, swung their little legs over the edge of the bed and scampered down the stairs, the chambers of their baffled baby hearts filled with yearning, and they tingled, they bounded down towards, before, before all of this. The father, drunk on the voice of his beloved, raced down after them. The sound of her voice was stinging, like a moon-dragged starvation surging into every hopeless, raw, vacant pore, Undoing, exquisite undoing. We're coming, Mum, their friend and house guest, who was a crow, stopped them at the door. My loves, he said. My dear, sorry loves, it isn't her. Go back to bed and let me deal with this. It isn't her. The boys floated their crumpled crepe paper dad back up, one under each arm, steering his weightlessness, and they laid him down to sleep. Then they sat at the window looking down and watching what happened, and they liked it very much, for boys will be boys. Crow went out, smiled, sniffed the air, nodded good evening and back kicked the door shut behind him. Then Crow demonstrated to the demon what happens when a crow repels an intruder to the nest, if there are babies in that nest. One loud cronk, a hop, a tap on the floor, a little distracted dance, a honk, swivel and lift as as discus swung up but not released but driven down, atomically fixed and explosive, the beak hurled down hammer hard into the demon's skull with a crack and a spurt then smashed onwards through bone brain, fluid and membrane into squirting spine, vertebra snap, vertebra crunch, vertebra nibbled and spat and one, two, three, four, five, all the way down, quick as a piranha nipping, cutting, disassembling the material of the demon splashing in blood and spinal gunk and shit, unravelling innards whipping ligaments and nerves about joyous spaghetti, tangled wool hammering, clawing, ripping, snipping slurping, burping, frankly loving the journey of hurting, hurting, hurting and for Crow it was like a lovely bin full of chip papers and ice cream and currywurst and baby robins and every nasty treat physically invigorating like a westerly above the moor, like a bouncy castle elm in the wind, like old family pleasures of the deep species and Crow stands thrilled in a pool of filth patiently sweeping and towing remains of demon into a drain hole. His work done, Crow struts and leaps up and down, the street issuing warnings while the pyjama-clad boys clap and cheer, behind glass silent. 
from the bedroom window. Crow issues warnings to the wide city, warnings in verse, warnings in many languages, warnings with bleeding edges, warnings with humour, warnings with dance and sublow threats and voodoo and puns and spectacular ancient ugliness. Satisfied with his defence of the nest, Crow wanders in to find some food. Baby Robins. I know, it's so <laughs> horrible. It's so gross. Yeah. Um, but that's what all of Crow's bits sound like. Yeah. And so you have these really nice little moments of the boys and the dad just sounding normal and then you have mm. that. Yeah. Which is awful. <laughs> and I thought I just wanted to finish this little expose with my favourite lines from this book which take place in a flash forward of one of the boys being grown up. Mm-hmm. And the lines are just I tell tales of our family friend the crow. My wife shakes her head. She thinks it's weird that I fondly remember family holidays with an imaginary crow and I remind her that it could have been anything, could have gone anyway, but something more or less healthy happened. We miss our mum, we love our dad, we wave at crows. It's not that weird. Oh, I love that. I love that as well. So yeah, I don't have much to say about this book other than if you are grieving or know about grief it's a very comforting book and if you enjoy ted hughes then it's also a very comforting (laughs) book so yeah happy halloween for that i guess nice okay okay well that is us that's been a journey it has I've got a very eclectic mix going on. I like it. I like it too. I feel like we really covered every facet of Halloween. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. As always, if you have any comments or questions, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. And please um, like our photos of our Halloween costumes after you listen to this yes, and validate us. Yes. And yes, yeah, see you for Christmas. <laughs> see you at Christmas time. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Bye. Bye. <laughs>